Rand Abdeljabbar is a young Iraqi artist who engages in a multidisciplinary approach to creative output, oscillating across the threshold between design, architecture, and the visual arts. Her research-based art is often informed by ancient Mesopotamian culture, drawing inspiration from Assyrian and Babylonian architecture, archaeology, and mythology. Throughout her process, she often borrows from and reconstructs the ephemera of place, history, and memory, employing design, sculpture, and installation as a primary medium of operation. Abdul Jabbar received a Master of Architecture from Columbia University in 2014, and it is my pleasure to have her here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. Um, so I first came across your work at, through your workshop at Shebek, um, this past summer, and from my understanding, you had these Iraqi women bring in artifacts or objects that reminded them from their home, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about, you know, what you were actually doing and maybe what you gleaned from that experience. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I was sort of approached by Shabak, uh, and they were interested in engaging the Iraqi community in London uh, through some sort of participatory uh, workshop or project. Um, and this is kind of pre-COVID, um, and the idea was I would, you know, kind of head to London in the summer and kind of explore more freely, meet different people, kind of see what sticks. And then obviously with the kind of uh, changing circumstances, um, we decided to kind of try to approach it a little differently and see if we could really engage people virtually. Um, and for me, that, you know, caused me to have to kind of define uh, some sort of um, goal or outcome for the project uh, more specifically. Um, and I really kind of look towards more personal experience of just being someone also uh, from the Iraqi diaspora, but maybe living elsewhere. And it's uh, kind of drawing on personal experience growing up in a household where, um, you know, my parents kind of surrounded us with objects that reminded them of home or things that kind of had sentimental value or meaning to them. Um, you know, they could be paintings or ceramic objects or kind of silver objects. Um, and I felt like this was kind of a good starting point to really get around a conversation about kind of how, you know, tangible things can have intangible or emotional value and meaning and, and, and turn something like an object into something much more meaningful or valuable to you. Um, so that was the real starting point. It was just kind of an, an outreach for a workshop. Um, it, it kind of started to focus more towards women, I think, through a partnership with the Iraqi Association, because they also had uh, kind of existing women's groups that would meet on a weekly basis. Um, but um, we also invited people from other Arab diaspora. So we have, uh, we had couple of participants from Syria, from Morocco, that were also part of the conversation. Uh, but it was kind of predominantly Iraqi. Um, and what was really interesting is that it kind of drew a range of participants, you know, people with firsthand experience living and leaving their homes. Uh, and others that, you know, maybe like me left when they were very young, uh, or were actually born in the diaspora altogether. Um, and so this sort of generated some form of intergenerational intergener uh, conversations uh, about how things then transfer across time or across multiple generations. Um, 
And as I mentioned, the starting point was for them to kind of pick an object uh, that they either brought with them or inherited um, that has deep sentimental value for them and really kind of speak about the memory that it holds. Uh, you know, whether it's people or places or kind of events and experiences. Um, and, and from it, you know, kind of from that starting point, uh, we conducted a series of exercises, some were kind of drawing exercises where they like produced a set of tracings and line drawings using their objects, but then kind of really expanded the conversation beyond that as well. It became much more uh, about, you know, questions of, you know, what 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 are the experiences of kind of leaving home? What are some of the struggles, some of the challenges, things like, you know, like kind of how do you transfer, you know, whether or not you should transfer pain uh, or the painful experiences across generations, whether that has really kind of cultural value or, or meaning in terms of kind of narrating your history and experiences. And then also the younger people kind of feeling like, you know, a deep sense of attachment to a place uh, that, you know, maybe they experienced really just through their parents' memories um, or the stories that they told them. Uh, but them kind of taking them on as if their own and really feeling a sense of responsibility to then be able to hold on to them and preserve them and narrate them uh, to the future generations. Um, and at, at the outcomes of the workshop were kind of participants produced a, a set of recordings and, and they varied from drawing to writing to even some kind of audio recordings that really try to kind of, yeah, record or, or uh, give form to those stories or experiences or memories that, that they valued and cherished. And the project is ongoing and I went back, I went to London, I managed to actually go a couple really? of weeks ago. Yeah, and I got to meet, Sorry. That's incredible that you got the chance to go despite the circumstances. Yeah, it wasn't very easy to kind of organize. Uh, it involved four weeks of quarantine going and coming oh, back. Wow. But uh, I did get to spend some time with them. And it was really nice to actually be able to, you know, meet face to face and, and kind of have these conversations more intimately um, and, and really think about ways to kind of keep developing these recordings into a project for the festival next year. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the project is now under the tentative title of every act of recognition alters what survives and it's really about kind of like you know um, um, maintaining that each individual story despite how different it may be is actually valid in the way that they start to kind of compose a sense of a larger collective history um, and so the project is sort of envisioned to be uh, almost these acts, right, an act of recognition and, and each act in a way kind of, um, you know, giving new life or, or kind of reconstructing an experience or an aspect of, of diaspora that is prevalent. Um, that might be personal, but, you know, um, speaks to a larger experience. I think that's um, so much of what you said is incredible. Um, for me, I'll, something that stood out was, you know, you said um, to remind people that there's, you know, tangible things related to tangible objects. And I think that's important to remember, especially when you're considering Iraq's rich history. Um, and one I think that in many ways is 
kind of the history of humanity. Um, and so, and at a point where it's virtually impossible to access what is in Iraq currently in the Iraq Museum, um, I think it's important that we make an active effort to try and maintain Iraq's modern history and the modern stories of Iraqis, um, especially considering the Iraqi diaspora. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very incredible project. Um, and so as someone who I was born, my mother is Palestinian Lebanese and my father's Iraqi. Um, so kind of two diasporas contributed to me being born in America. Um, but as a result of that, I've kind of felt a disconnect between, you know, my family and, or myself and my Iraqi family, or being Iraqi in that I speak Arabic, sure, but that doesn't necessarily mean I feel Iraqi. So that kind of brings me to my next question in that you felt this, you recognize this disconnect um, between maybe your identity and the land, but I'm not necessarily, it wasn't the same disconnect that I've been feeling in that I'm too Western, but I wanted to learn more about how that inspired you and has shaped your worldview and kind of, um, I guess, how, why do you think you felt a disconnect between your identity as an Iraqi woman and your ability to stake your claim over the modern land? Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, like kind of, I, I didn't feel like I couldn't call myself Iraqi in the sense that like, you know, obviously I grew up in an Iraqi household. It's the food I eat. It's the language I speak. It's, it's where my family lives, kind of extended family. But, you know, you, you experience everything that's happening there at a distance and it's usually through a screen. Um, so, you know, I was a teenager when the U.S. invasion of Iraq kind of took place. Um, and I was kind of just seeing these images um, on the TV and, and hearing these stories, but just feeling like you're so far detached from what's really happening on the ground and, and what people are experiencing on a kind of daily basis. Um, and that, so I, so Iraq was always kind of like important to me personally, but not necessarily, you know, very um, kind of present within my practice. Um, but it was really kind of in 2016 when I was invited by Dubai Design Week to uh, co-curate the Iraq Pavilion uh, at Abwab. And, you know, for me, I sort of faced the question of like, you know, does just being Iraqi really qualify me to be able to kind of represent represent a place in its contemporary form, a place that I really don't know. And, and, I, and I'm always careful not to kind of like, um, you know, hijack other people's experiences. And, and so, and, and it was a similar case for, for Hosan Zangana, who's the, who's the designer that I kind of collaborated with on this project, because we had both left Iraq when we were very young. He lives in Amsterdam and I was in uh, Abu Dhabi. But for us, what, so kind of like looking for a, a point of connection or a, paint, a point where you could really feel like you can lay claim to that identity was really kind of looking back at Iraq's history and the history of the land. Um, because, you know, Iraqis, despite your kind of differences in, in language, ethnicity, uh, what we felt was really shared was a kind of common sense of pride in our ancient past and also the kind of in, in its value, you know, like I feel like, you know, most Iraqis uh, are proud of what we have in the Iraq Museum and, and museums around the world. 
Um, and, and we're kind of also disheartened by some of the damage uh, that the conflict has kind of inflicted on our history and our material heritage. Um, so that was really a kind of starting point to really try to engage the land and en engage its history. Um, and, I, and I felt like it was sort of, yeah, befitting, as you said, to really turn to the land and the territory itself. And that's where kind of archaeology became a really important kind of theme and, and avenue of research. And it's kind of where the project name comes from too, right? Excavations. It's, it's really about kind of digging and digging back through your history and, and, and looking at what has been uncovered and, and really trying to kind of, you know, also promote a narrative of, of heritage that it's not fixed or static, but that it's, it's very much can be an active agent in kind of defining who we are and, and, and the kind of formal language that we use and this idea of repetitive forms, right? Um, and so how do you give new life or new form uh, to, to your material heritage and show that it can be, um, you know, an, an active agent in your life? So when you return to your home, then how is it that this new understanding or this new realization, um, I wouldn't call it a realization really, um, more so just learning, um, impact maybe your work in a way that, or changed your perspectives on your work in a way that you maybe hadn't seen it before, mm -hmm. or the decision to incorporate more of your Iraqi heritage into your active practice it's sort of uh, any for me it, it kind of just opened up a new avenue of possibilities and also opened up a kind of opened myself up to, to a passion that maybe it was dormant um but you know all of a sudden i felt this freedom you know this kind of freedom and agency to, to explore um something that is very dear and near to me and what started off as kind of maybe more of a, a visual connection, you know, so like the way excavations, the way we worked was kind of like digging through, let's say museum collections or, um, and, and, and finding photos of artifacts and kind of responding, them, responding to them very intuitively, but, but very visually and formally. But then, you know, you, you, you start to be, get curious about like, okay, you know, where, where does that really come from? What is the history of that site? You know, what civilization? What does this represent? What is this myth? And so it kind of opened up this research avenue to really exploring kind of, you know, myth and, and, and history and, and, and the architecture of, of that place. Um, and following uh, that project, I also really made an active effort to try to kind of have one-on-one -on -one encounters with these objects that I was so fascinated by, you know, so I really made an effort to like go to places like the British Museum, the Louvre, the Pergamon, and then eventually the Iraq Museum itself and really kind of have these these one-on-one -on -one encounters with them. Um, collected a bunch of books and really started to get better acquainted with, with the history. Um, and I think beyond the kind of, you know, history with a capital H, uh, I think it also caused me to want to explore, uh, you know, a more personal history. Um, so immediately following the excavations project, I was part of this residency, um, and a fellowship really. And um, I spent the whole time really kind of creating work that drew on my personal family history 
family photo albums and archives um, and really trying to explore that that place that you know or these items that have very much shaped my conception of of home a conception of the land and and create work that tries to kind of uh, resurrect or, or recreate these experiences so it was a project called reconstructions um, and it and it was coming from a very personal place um, um, so I, I think that what what excavations allowed me with that kind of first investigation is really start to explore you know kind of more um, uh, uh, mainstream history but then also a kind of personal history in parallel Mm. Thank you. Um, so when you, uh, yeah, when you create, do you have a goal in mind? Um, is there, like, have you set out on each of these projects um, trying to convey the message that you maybe end up conveying or at least hope that you end up conveying at the end? Or is it something that kind of develops naturally? I think, um it, it let's say it varies project to project, but I think for the most part, you know, my my process is very research based, um, and so it really starts with a question, a curiosity. Um, so, for so I, I never really know, or I never really start a project with a full idea of what it's going to look like in the end, um, but I just kind of let things fall into place a bit more naturally as things become more clear to me or as I get better acquainted with it. So, for example, um, I, so kind of following this research into the ancient Mesopotamian history, I became curious about, you know, knowing what is happening uh, in terms of like the destruction to, to um, ancient sites and archaeological sites by ISIS. I was just kind of looking very generally about, okay, what are the extents of the damage, you know? And I found this long list of structures um, and sites that were damaged by ISIS in Iraq. And one of them just sort of piqued my interest. It was a, it was a minaret in a town yeah. called Ana. Um, and it kind of attracted me because my maternal grandfather is from Anna. So that was just kind of like a very, you know, personal, immediate connection. I was like, oh, what, what is this structure about? And I uncovered this crazy story of like, you know, a structure that's built in the 12th century. Anna is like a beautiful city on the Euphrates. There with me. I mean, if you don't mind, um, if you could share a little bit of the story, because I don't know very yeah. much of it. That would be yeah. amazing. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. But um, so Anna is located in Western Iraq, it's on the Euphrates and it's very close to the border with Syria. And I, and I knew that, you know, very vaguely through kind of family conversations that, you know, there was, an, there was the old city that was on the river and then there was a dam built in the 80s that completely flooded the city and all the people had to be kind of relocated to a new city. But I, I never really fully understood or looked into that history. So with this minaret, it kind of like, you know, got me to, to research that a bit more. And I found out about the structure that's built in the 12th century by the Aqaylid dynasty. It's an Islamic dynasty. And um, it stayed in place uh, up until the 80s. 
um, where there were a lot of water disputes over the Euphrates, you know, kind of between Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And uh, there was a decision made by the government to construct a dam, and the repercussions of which were kind of a flooding zone that included the entire city of Anna. So they made plans to basically build a modern city and relocate all its residents. Um, but the question became, you know, what do we do with this minaret? It's such an iconic structure for the city and, and just in terms of like architectural history in general. Um, and so there were a few proposals put in, put forth. Uh, you know, one was to just kind of like, let it sink. The second was like, okay, you could kind of maybe build a moat around it and protect it from the rising waters, but it would just kind of be left on its own or Another one was to kind of elevate it above water level, but again, it would just be left on its own. Uh, but then the kind of more ambitious thing, which is what they ended up doing was, you know, based on an example in, in Egypt, uh, they decided to slice the structure into 16 uh, sections, transport it across the river to the mainland, and then reconstruct the building um, in the new city. And so that's what they ended up doing. They kind of sliced it, moved it, rebuilt it. And so out of, you know, the entire city that was lost, this was kind of its lone survivor, you know, and, and, it's, and it's only kind of, um, uh, it's, it's the only thing for, for the, that the people had left that kind of really reminded them of their original city. Um, and so fast forward, kind of following the 2003 invasion, um, there were, there was an American sniper stationed atop the minaret because it was kind of the highest point in the city. And, um, it was targeted by Al-Qaeda and it was bombed and destroyed in 2006. Um, so completely reduced to rubble. And then a group of archaeologists from Anna, including a man named Yusuf al-Daham, who became a kind of later um, and a very important collaborator in this project um you know went about conceiving of a plan to rebuild it from the rubble and you know years later uh, they managed to get some funding from the iraq government and kind of working with old uh, architectural drawings and that had kind of complete you know from when it was moved that had completely documented the structure actually went about rebuilding it um, and they produced these molds of these kind of carved niches, um, carved niche designs uh, that they were able to recast. Um, and it kind of opened to great fanfare. Um, and everyone was kind of happy to have this, this structure back in the city. Um, and then four years after that, it's destroyed again by ISIS. So it was just kind of this incredible story of, of, of a structure that has gone through kind of multiple cycles of destruction and, and rebirth, you know? Um, and so you know, that's really all I, I mean, in the beginning, all I had really were kind of grainy photographs taken by Gertrude Bell in 1909. Gertrude Bell is someone I'm also deeply kind of fascinated by. Um, and and then a few kind of like images on Facebook and stuff, no real articles, no real documentation. And I started asking around like my family, you know, I thought, okay, it's Anna, maybe someone knows someone there that knows a little bit more about it. And I eventually established contact with Yusuf al-Daham and, and we just kind of started having these conversations on the phone where he just kind of told me a little bit more about it, shared photos, told the whole history. Um, and eventually that's what kind of caused me to plan my first trip to Iraq 
at the end of 2018. And I got to meet him there. And we went around the Iraq Museum together. And then uh, a couple of months after that, so it was really just research for my own sake. Like there was no idea of a project or where it would go or what would happen. But a few months later, um, I was contacted by Jamil Art Center here in, in Dubai. Um, and they were launching this new program called Library Circles where they were kind of interested in, in uh, working with artists or creative practitioners that really engage research in their work to almost put up an installation near their library that was kind of like thinking in public, they called it, you know? So putting up ideas out there, sharing it with people and just kind of like seeing how, how it could manifest or, or develop. So I put up an installation of the research and then I, um, we invited Yusuf to come over to Dubai and we had a great conversation with him around kind of some of the challenges facing heritage preservation specialists. And there's a recording of that online uh, on YouTube. And after that, I was approached again by uh, Noura Razian, who's the curator there at Jamil Art Center. And she, she was working on a show about kind of material heritage. Um, it was a show called Phantom Limb. And she sort of asked me like, kind of, you know, where do you see this going? How do you see this developing? And I just told her like, you know, out of this whole process, um, the only thing that survived are these molds. So these molds of the carved niches that they produced in 2012. And I really want to recast those molds. And so that's kind of what we ended up doing. They were cast in Iraq, shipped to Dubai, um, and the, the work at the end, it's called End the River Washing Its Feet, um, which kind of draws from a diary entry that Gertrude Bell wrote about Arana, where she's describing it. Um, and it was the eight casts of the carved niche designs, along with video projections that were kind of home video from Yusuf's archive that one of the videos shows a man that takes his children to the edge of the riverbed. This is an old Anna and he kind of talks to them about, he shows them the minaret and he talks to them about its importance and how it's going to be moved. And you see kind of scaffolding surrounding it. Um, and then the second video is actually kind of a time-lapse video that shows the water levels rising after the dam was built and the city kind of slowly being engulfed by water until in the end, kind of all you see is the top of a palm tree peeking up, peeking up from above the, the water level. So again, it's kind of like, how do you kind of start to narrate a story from its fragments um, yeah. and describe its loss? In many ways, you put the story back together. So I think that's amazing. But I mean, I think it's also very depressing, really, that this minaret was able to stand the test of time so long up until um, uh, unnecessary and unwanted and frankly, um, for lack of better words, just stupid um, reasons. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's yeah. And I think that it's also so I think it's also particularly important because the histories are so strongly attached to these objects. And so as we erase them, um, we need to be very diligent to make sure that these histories are not erased along with the objects. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, your conscious effort to try and revive and maintain that history is 
what is frankly needed all around Iraq because this is happening um, at a really fast rate and you're only one person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and so, as you've mentioned, a lot of, or Frank, uh, everything involves a lot of research. And so I was wondering if in this research, um, maybe you've discovered, so like an underrepresented narrative, which this is very ambiguous, but for me, um, I, in my research of ancient Mesopotamia, something that struck me was Ishtar's very overt sexuality in ancient Mesopotamia and how it's, I mean, I didn't know very much about this um, cradle of civilization, but I thought it was very interesting, especially considering women's position in society today and their expected modesty. Um, And so I was wondering if you had maybe a similar instance where you were maybe taken aback by something you learned in ancient Mesopotamian history. If not, that's okay. Mm. It's kind of, uh, yeah, ambiguous. Well, yeah, actually something associated uh, with uh, Ashtar. So, um, you know, one of the kind of most important myths, so Ashtar is also known as Inanna, depending on which civilization yeah. you look at. Uh, but one of the most kind of important myths associated with her is one called Inanna's descent to the underworld. Um, and it's where, you know, kind of she... Uh, you know, she's very kind of, she's a very proud goddess and kind of wants her domain to expand to include the, the underworld, the uh, netherworld. And so she sets about kind of uh, making the trip down there. And she leaves a series of instructions for her kind of minister uh, saying like, if I don't return, you know, this is how you get me back type of thing. So she, she goes down to the netherworld and it's actually ruled by her sister and she's sort of like stripped of all her powers and she's um, pronounced dead and like sentenced to death. And so her, her minister goes about kind of once she didn't come back, following her instructions to have her come back, went to several gods. And then one of the gods finally kind of helps her, sends her help to the netherworld to kind of revive her. And so they do that and she's about to leave. And then the guards at the netherworld are like, hold on a minute. Like, you're not just, no one can just enter and leave. You need to give someone to take your place. Um, And they're like, okay, give us your minister. And she's like, no, like she's so loyal to me, you know, give us this person, no, this person's blah, blah, blah. And then they ask her for kind of her lover, uh, Dumuzit. Um, and she finds him kind of just frolicking, frolicking about, like not really worried about her being missing. And so she's furious. And so she wants uh, to give him uh, to the netherworld instead. Um, and then Dumuzid managed to kind of like escape the guards, but then they eventually find him. But Inanna feels bad for him. And so then she makes a proposition of like, okay, what if I give him to you for half the year and for the other half of the year? Uh, his place is taken by his sister. And uh, I don't know if you know, but the, in in uh, Arabic, uh, there's a month called Tammuz. Um, and it's kind of like known as the hottest month of the year. And Tammuz is actually the Semitic version of Dumuzid. And what is kind of said is that um, so Dumuzid was uh, kind of uh, one of his powers, or he was like a kind of shepherd god or something. He had to do with kind of agriculture and land and life and sustenance. 
Um, and so uh, they always marked basically the month that's barren with this idea that it's when Demuzit then uh, heads down to the underworld. It's, so it's when this, his half year in the underworld starts is the month Tammuz. That's an amazing story. <laughs> I found wow. it very interesting. Yeah, I think that's just interesting. Yeah, that's so cool. But again, it shows you that, you know, it, it allows you to make connections with people that lived 4,000 years ago, but kind of sim experienced similar weather conditions or seasons or cycles of the year and kind of marked them in their own way. Um, and and these the 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 way they commemorate it uh, and the name that they use to commemorate it kind of persists to to now. So that's something that's yeah. Awesome. I think in Iraq, like more so than in a lot of other places, ancient like the ancient history is still very relevant to the present. And um, yeah, I think it's perfectly encapsulated in that story. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess. A lot of my questions have been directed to how what you've been learning or this entire journey has contributed to your art and how that has changed your art. But I guess my question is, how has that shaped your worldview or the way in which you approach things? Um, yeah, I guess, how has this journey affected you as an individual? Mm. Not mm. have it manifest itself, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a difficult question because you know it's hard to draw the line between yourself and your practice it's very much kind of an extension of yourself um uh yeah i think artists maybe have a, a reputation of being slightly narcissistic because you're literally just making work that is inspired by your own thought process or emotional process or, or that kind of thing um it's definitely been you know, fulfilling for me in terms of like really giving me almost like a, a passion or, or, or a calling or really feeling like you have something to advocate for or protect. And it's exposed me a lot more to that kind of history of, of archaeology and looting and, and kind of really thinking about, um, you know, all these, these artifacts that sit in museums around the world, um, in my opinion, illegally, um, and thinking about kind of all these conversations that are happening in museums now around restitution um, and kind of giving back stolen uh, artifacts to the countries which they belong or where they were taken from. Um, and that is something that, you know, isn't, isn't necessarily, you know, in, in some cases, for example, certain African tribes, you know, these aren't, or these aren't only kind of material relics, but they're also kind of spiritual relics or, or places that, you know, like communities used to kind of congregate around or, or, or pray for and, and that kind of thing. So it has, you know, deep, significant emotional value to the communities that exist in places around the world today. Um, so that's definitely something that has kind of really opened my eyes. Um, but, at, but also kind of like, you know, in terms of like how it can build bridges with other people, you know, like the, this exploration isn't something that I do uh, I, just only as an individual, you know, it's, it's, I've built a lot of relationships with people through it. Um, so whether it's Yusuf and the kind of collaboration that we had around Anna, you know, I still consider him someone who's like a friend um, and someone that I've learned a lot from. 
Um, and then even with the Shubak project now, you know, it's like you, you're working with all these women and, and you're trying, you know, I'm, I'm not just kind of someone who's going to swoop in and, and, and take their narratives and kind of present it as my artistic work. It is very much kind of a, a dialogue and, and a conversation and in a way, you know, kind of how do you treat people's stories with respect? And, and kind of convey their experiences in a, in a way that, you know, honors their, their legacy. Um, so there's definitely a lot of kind of, you know, uh, responsibility in the way that you build relationships with people uh, and the trust that they give you with their narratives as well. Um, and really, I work hard to try to kind of honor and, and respect that, uh, you know, as much as I can. Um, so, you mentioned these objects that are being held, you know, around the world. I know the British Museum has what I believe is the biggest collection of Mesopotamian artifacts outside of Iraq. Um, and there's a variety of other institutes that have very large Mesopotamian relic collections. But on one hand, while I agree that these objects have one, uh, like should be in Iraq because that is where they belong and that is their home. And they also have a huge importance to a greater importance to Iraq and anywhere else. But at a point where the, what is available inside the Iraq museum is not actually accessible to others around the world. Do you think that returning these objects would be almost like hiding these stories yet again? Like in that, the, having these artifacts out in the world are one of the only ways that people can actually interact with them? Um. You know, that is an argument that's often used that, you know, these artifacts are safer in the West. Um, well, it's a question, not necessarily, like, I don't know the right answer. So I guess I just want to know what your yeah. take is on it. So, I mean, I, I yeah, I, you know, I kind of understand where that sort of thinking comes from. But I think, you know, we cannot deny, uh, you know, Britain's um, role in, um, in the politics of Iraq and kind of shaping the politics of the region and a lot of the turmoil and the uncertainty and the war and the violence and the lack of security that has led us to where we are now. You know, you can't, you can't destroy a culture and destroy a land and get, get yourself involved in wars that harm people's lives and their material heritage and then come back and say, well, sorry, your situation is not safe enough for you to kind of hold these, um, uh, these items that are of kind of universal heritage and value that we stole from you. So we are the better caretakers of your culture that we destroyed, you know, so that's just an argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatsoever. I, I agree that, you know, the restitution needs to happen under certain circumstances that obviously ensures that things are in a kind of safe, protected environment and that there are rules in place to protect them. But, you know, Iraq is not a lawless land and, and um, it was due to the 2003 invasion that like hundreds of thousands of items were stolen from the Iraq Museum with American tanks at the door. Nothing was done to stop them. Um, and, you know, some of the largest loot 
that has happened is now also, I don't know if you've heard about the Museum of the Bible, which is kind of like a, a museum that was owned by the, the family that owns Hobby Lobby. Um, and they, the authorities have confiscated thousands of relics that have yeah. been handled out yeah. of after the invasion. Um, so they're, they're, the West is still very much complicit in the trafficking and illicit trading of uh, Iraqi heritage. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's each country's sovereignty to determine kind of like how, um, how its heritage is treated. Um, and as I mentioned, like, you know, Iraq has had laws that protected uh, its heritage for many years, um, kind of starting in the 30s, I believe. Um, and there were also kind of contingency plans in place, let's say in the 80s during the Iran-Iraq war, there was always kind of like a plan put in place for how do you preserve the Iraq museum in, in case of bombing and, and things like that. Um, but it was the complete disintegration of the state after 2003 that really led us um, to, to this place. Another thing I want to say is, you know, the re stealing artifacts is a very lucrative business. Um, and so it, it is a form of income generation for uh, ISIS. It's, you know, it's, it's masked. In this, yes, it's masked in this kind of belief that, you know, oh, these are these go these are pre Islamic uh, remnants and therefore we need to destroy their existence, which is true to a certain extent, but they don't just bomb and destroy these things. They traffic them, they sell them to foreign collectors, and they make a lot of money uh, from the looting of these artifacts. Um, so it's ongoing. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, not, yeah, well, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and so is open to the public. Like, you know, it's, it's yeah, no, I went, I, it was amazing. But uh, like the collect, everything there is so amazing. And I mean, despite this, you know that, like, I mean, thousands of objects have been looted, but when you're there, you're still so overcome by um, awe because the ex collection is still so expansive. And, and there's still so much that's in storage. That's not even. Yeah. Um, wow, I can't believe it's ongoing. I truly had no idea, which shows you how, um, I mean, yeah, how yeah no, it's definitely not talked about it is. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, you know, the world has become a bit better at kind of identifying and, and, you know, trying to kind of protect, like, you know, kind of just like the loot with Hobby Lobby, you know, authorities were able to kind of find them. But oftentimes what also happens is that say, you know, Amer the US Customs finds these artifacts it's a very long process to have them returned back to Iraq, even after they're found, you know? Um, and it's not just with artifacts. And I don't mean to kind of specifically, you know, target uh, the United States, but I think it's, it's, a, it's you know, <laughs> major actor and is very complicit in, in kind of what has happened to Iraqi heritage, including, you know, there's a collection of uh, items that were in the Ministry of Interior in Baghdad and the US Army very deliberately um, targeted these, they're the Jewish archives of Iraq. Uh, they targeted them, they stole them and they took them and I believe they're now the National the Library of Congress. 
right? And is that the National Library? No, that definitely exists. Yeah, I think that's. So they're now, they were taken after 2003, went to the United States, and they're there in, in kind of a public institution in the United States. And they've refused to return them back to Iraq. Uh, even though they were stolen from government buildings and offices. And the argument is always, you know, well, here more researchers will have access to them. But really, th that's not the solution. The solution is like, how do you then, you know, create uh, an environment in Iraq that allows researchers to access them, especially now with kind of digital technology and scanning and so on? You know, the, the, it, Iraq, just because it's in Iraq doesn't mean that you can build a robust you know, uh, infrastructure, digital infrastructure to make things accessible to people or in the hopes that one day they would be accessible kind of to researchers in person. My hope, um, but this is a really gargantuan task, which I have yet to devise exactly how I would like to accomplish this, but at a point where obviously technology is more important than ever, and a lot of um, universities are working to create a digital humanity um, sort of programs where, you know, you're getting these collections on, <clears throat> online so more people can interact with them. So what I think would be so amazing is that if there was a digital archive of everything that was in the Adolf Museum, because that kind of, you know, solves the problem, mm -hmm. sort of, um, to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, this is a really huge task. And I just think that like, there's no one who's said that they're up for it yet, but I would like to investigate in the future to see how that is possible. Yeah, and there's that, a lot that's yeah. happening with digital technology, you know, um, in terms of kind of like rapid response uh, preservation. So the 3D scanning techniques, uh, there are examples from kind of Aleppo before its destruction, where a team was able to go in and 3D scan kind of ancient sites like Palmyra and and be able to kind of have a very good digital copy or replica that can be used um, for let's say conservation efforts in the future or to actually produce kind of like replicas of these, these artifacts. So there's definitely a lot being done in the heritage front uh, to try to kind of combat some of the destruction uh, that is taking place. Hmm. Um, so a uh, final question is more just, um, so you've spoken about your love for Gertrude Bell, or at least your intrigue with her as a writer. Um, so I was wondering if, um, I've never read a Gertrude Bell book, so I was wondering if you could point me in the right direction of one, a good place to start, and two, what I might expect to learn from whichever book that may be. Well, Gertrude Bell, uh, you know, less so than a writer, let's say, was kind of a traveler, right? So she was a woman who traveled extensively through the Arab world in the kind of uh, late uh, 19th, early 20th century. And, you know, had at, at some point you'd say maybe was most knowledgeable Westerner when it came to kind of Arab tribes and customs and, and, and so on and so forth, and also history. Um, so she, um, you know, she eventually also became kind of involved in a, a lot of the politics of the region. So when it came to kind of Sykes-Picot and the division of Arab land between the British and the French, um, it was really under her guidance that they kind of drew the lines on the map. So she's a highly contentious figure. 
But in as in like she was involved with the Balfour Declaration and that sort of stuff. She was involved in in, in kind of helping um, the British and the French draw the border lines that define the Arab world, right? So like, okay, you know, this is Iraq, this is Syria, this is Palestine, so on and so forth. Um, can you give me one second? I'm just getting a call. I'm gonna pause. Sorry. No problem. Um, but I think a good place to start is her archive. Um, so uh, her archive is at Newcastle University, and a lot of it is actually available online. Um, so in it, you can like search by country. She she was an avid photographer, and so I told you she kind of documented Anna, but she's documented the entire region extensively and really incredible, like just to see the kind of state of things before. A lot of the sites that are now destroyed, really their best photographic evidence is, is was taken by, by her. Um, her diary entries are all online, so you can kind of search by year. Um, and then she also has a lot of kind of correspondence and letters and, and essays that she's sort of written. So there's definitely a lot to dig through if you look through her archive.